Um, I want to start with a quote, from an old quote from John Ortberg. It says, it is, Je- it is in Jesus' name that desperate people pray, grateful people worship, and angry people swear. From christenings to weddings, to sick rooms to funerals, it is in Jesus' name that people are hatched, matched, patched, and dispatched. From the dark ages to post-modernity, he is the man who won't go away. Who is this man who won't go away? We speak of him so often, especially within church, that we're inclined to take him for granted. You ever notice that? Do we really know who he is? Well, we're about to find out today. Because as we continue our series on what it is that we believe in, you know, what we believe, based on, our sermon, uh, based on our statement of faith, we're going to be talking through today who Jesus is. Remember, we talked about the Bible. We talked about the Godhead, God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. Today, we're going to focus in on who is Jesus. What is it that we as a church believe about Jesus? How is that backed up by Scripture? What does the Bible say on this topic? Um, if you want to read ahead, next week we're going to be looking at the Holy Spirit, the one we know the least about, Right? So we're going to learn about him. And you can read ahead. You can go to our website, and you can click on who we are, and then you can click on our statement of faith, and you can follow right along with us. All right? Let me begin today by just uh, reading about what our statement of faith says about Jesus. It says, this is what we believe. Jesus Christ is true God and true man, having been conceived by the Holy Spirit and born of the Virgin Mary. He lived a sinless life, and died on the cross as a sacrifice for our sins, substituting himself to receive our penalty according to the scriptures, rose from the dead, ascended into heaven, and now sits at the right hand of God as our high priest and advocate. That's what we believe to be true about Jesus. So let's break that down a little bit. First of all, we believe in Jesus Christ. What does it mean to say that we believe in Jesus? Have you ever thought about what does his name even mean? Um, it's interesting, there's a difference between transliteration and translation. So transliteration is how we say it in our language. So, you know, it's, it's, it's just saying it in our language the best way we can, and then a translation is what it means. So the basic idea here to illustrate that is Jesus' name, the way we say it, actually comes from the Koine Greek. Remember we learned that earlier. The Bible was written primarily in Greek. In our language, what's the language that most people use to communicate to each other? Difficult question. Anybody know? English. Should, you know, it's English, right? We speak English. In the Roman Empire, because, Rome, because remember, Alexander the Great had originally conquered most of that land. He was Greek, and so people spoke Greek. But not just Greek, they spoke a certain dialect, the Koine Greek. So the Bible, the New Testament, is written in the Koine Greek. And in the Koine Greek, the word for Jesus is, and here it is, I-E-S-O-U-S is how they would spell it. We would pronounce it Jesus. You want to try that? Jesus. That's how you said Jesus' name. Now, we transliterate it. We're not translating what it means, but we transliterate it, and over the years, we have come to say that in English is Jesus. The correct pronunciation is Jesus, but we call him Jesus. Okay? Um, In Greek, that's the transliteration, but in Hebrew, how would they say Jesus in Hebrew, and this is actually the original name. They would say Yeshua. Yeshua was his name. And Yeshua in English is Joshua. 
Okay, so that's what it means. We got a Josh here. Um, and so, yeah, you can stand up and take a bow. <laughs> so so that's, that's an important way. So literally, what does, the, what does Jesus and Yeshua, Jesus and Joshua, what does it mean? What's the translation? What is its meaning? Its meaning is Yahweh saves. Isn't that profound for the name of Jesus? Yahweh is God's we learned earlier, God's, and you can go back and listen to some of these because I can't go back and all the details again, but Yahweh is God's personal, intimate name. It's his covenantal name. The great I am, the God who has eternally existed, will save us. And specifically within the context, what we're saying here is that the self-existent God of the universe sent Jesus to save us. That's what his name essentially means within the context of his life. Isn't that profound? Now, his last name isn't Christ, by the way. Did you know that? It's not like Mr. Christ. Nice to meet you, sir. No, that wasn't his last name. That was his title. So again, it's the same thing. We say Christ in English, but the Greek word is Christos. And Christos is the Greek word, but what's the Hebrew word that it originally came from? Masiach. They... They have trouble with their H's, okay? They don't, they don't talk like we do. So they have like this little catch in their throat. So it's an H, so it says Messiah, but they pronounce it. And then when you're in Hebrew, when you're in Israel, you hear they'll say Messiah. And they actually, it's kind of like a in the back of the throat. So Messiah is how you say Jesus' title. So then the next question is, what does that mean? It means anointed one. And we say Okay, I was doing all right, but what in the world does anointed one have to do? Why, why, what's the big deal there, right? So here's the deal. In Israel, they had three officers, three high positions, okay? And they were the prophet, the priest, and the king. You got that? And if you were a prophet, priest, or king, they would anoint you. They would pour oil over your head, and that's how they would initiate you and say, you're anointed, you're one of our leaders. Now, that may sound far off, but let's listen to what we do in our country. We have three branches, right? We have, what are they, kids? Legislative, executive, judicial. And how do we put them into office? We have them swear on a Bible. Is that similar? It's the same kind of thing. But they would anoint them. And so they would call this person the anointed one. Now, let's, let's take a look at how Jesus fulfilled this. Was Jesus a prophet? Yes. He foretold the future. He foretold the future, and he, he, and he told us how to live our lives while we're here on earth. So that's what a prophet does. Um, a priest, he died in our place as the high priest, and we'll see more of that so we don't have to make offerings anymore. The king, Matthew 1 says that he was the rightful king of Israel, and they show his whole birth chart, his genealogy to show that. But furthermore, God says in Philippians, Paul says in Philippians chapter 2, verses 5 through 11, that one day every knee will bow and tongue confess that he is Lord, that he is the ruler. Now, we know all that about him, but the next question is, have you ever wondered what Jesus was doing before he came to earth? Because you think about it, we've learned that he had a pre-existence and he had eternality. He, he's always existed according to what we learned a couple weeks ago. So what was he doing beforehand? One, we know he eternally existed. Does the Bible say so? Yes. For example, in one place, Hebrews chapter 13, verse 8, Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, 
and forever. He's always existed. And then when he came to earth, we had what we call his incarnation. That's not talking about ice cream. I used to, I think, yeah, darn, you know. I, the, not, what is he talking about? Well, again, there's this language deal going on. Remember, if you're in Rome, you're in Italian, all right? And so you're speaking Latin language. And that's the language of Rome, and that was the main capital, the big city where the Christians came. And so the scholars that began to write about this over the years wrote Latin. And so the, we pick up words in Greek and we pick up words in Latin. And in Latin, incarnation means, pretty simple, in the flesh. Jesus existed from all of eternity, but at a certain point in time, he came to live in the flesh on planet Earth. Pretty cool. So what would pre-incarnate mean? What was his life like before he came to live on planet Earth in the flesh? And there's a couple things we know about that. One is that he was busy creating all things. For by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him. Here's something else that's interesting. There are examples of somebody called the angel of Yahweh in the Old Testament. He's not an angel, not a typical angel, but he's this person that comes with certain assigned tasks. He's kind of like a special agent of God that takes care of people and comes in, 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 as a human. He's like a human being, and he cares them, but he's not. There's something about him. He's called the angel of Yahweh. We have examples of him ministering to Hagar in Genesis chapter 16, to Abraham and Sarah in Genesis 18, possibly to Jacob in Genesis 32, to Moses in Exodus 3. Who is this angel of Yahweh, this mysterious personage? Most scholars believe that it's the pre-incarnate Jesus. Pretty interesting stuff, huh? Let's take a brief overview of his life. You probably know most of this, but you may not know all of it. He comes to earth now. That was what he was like before. Now he's on earth. And how does he come to earth? He comes being born to a, a, a young virgin girl by the name of Mary or Maria. Um, and he is born in a stable at Bethlehem. His foster father will become Joseph. Joseph's there, but they're betrothed, not married yet. Angels proclaim the baby's birth to the shepherds, right? The shepherds come in, they see it, and they go and they tell everybody in Bethlehem. Now, here, here's something most of you don't know. And you're going to, I hate, it's, well, we have enough time. Okay, Christmas is coming. You all have nativity scenes? How many of you have the wise men in your nativity scenes? Throw them out. Okay, so now you know. They weren't there, okay? So just get rid of them. Get, you know, see if you can put them... Put them on eBay. See if you can make some money off them. <laughs> Don't have them at your nativity. They weren't there. It doesn't matter that much, but symbolically, I guess they were there during that story. But according to the Bible, it was about two years later that these wise men came along. They were called Magi is how they pronounced it. The Magi came, and they saw a star, and they came to the capital of Jerusalem. They said, we think there's a king that's supposed to be born here. Where would he be born? And so King Herod, who was a very corrupt ruler, um, and really just a puppet ruler at that, went and asked the priest and the scribes, where is this guy supposed to be born? And they said, the Messiah is supposed to be born in Bethlehem. And so they told the wise men, and they went to Bethlehem, they found Jesus, and they, they, they worshipped him, they gave him gifts, and then they had a dream, don't go back and tell Herod, even though he wants you to. So they went another way, and Herod found out about it, so what did Herod do? He went in and he killed every boy under two years of age. That's why we know it was at least two years later. He killed every boy that was two years of age and under in Bethlehem. 
But Jesus didn't die. Because Joseph, his foster father, had a dream telling him to get out of there and go to Egypt. What's interesting about that is, isn't that where Israel went? Israel went to Egypt, and then they came back. Jesus goes to Egypt, and that fulfills prophecy by Hosea. And then he comes back, and he ultimately ends up in Nazareth. And that's where he grows up. Now, Jesus was the oldest. Did you know he had brothers and sisters? Anybody know that? Matthew chapter 13, verse 55, says that he had four brothers and at least two sisters. And that it appears that he followed his foster father, Joseph, into the trade of carpentry and stayed in Nazareth until he was 30 years of age, and then he commenced his ministry. Jesus was baptized by his cousin, John the Baptist, and the Holy Spirit, began gathering disciples, performing his first miracle at the wedding of Cana, where he turned water into wine. Jesus proclaimed that the kingdom of God has come and his message is best encapsulated in the Sermon on the Mount, which we looked at last summer. He also performed many miracles, cast out demons, healed the sick, and he primarily ministered in households. Households were usually what they called oikons, usually groups of about 8 to 15 people. And then when they would come to know Christ, then they would go do that at other households. It's what we still do. You can't conquer the world, but you can work with the people in your household or the people in your you know, 8 to 15 people that you know. Jesus traveled to Jerusalem several times, developed a large following, had 12 formal disciples representing the 12 tribes of Israel. His popularity waned because he called for sacrificial service, exposed sin, and extended grace to the oppressed and to the Gentiles, even the non-Jews. Then his popularity returned when he raised Lazarus from the dead. This is about three and a half years later, okay, of the whole ministry that he has. So he raises Lazarus from the dead, and then what does he do? He gets on the colt of a donkey, and he goes down from the Mount of Olives into, into Jerusalem. And when they see him, they're overwhelmed. They start shouting praises to him, and they make a makeshift carpet out of um, the fronds of the palm trees. And we call that what? Palm Sunday. Somebody knows. So Palm Sunday, right? And so Palm Sunday comes. He cleans out the money changers, the corrupt money changers, um, from their location in the temple, and he begins teaching all these people. But the Jewish people are upset, the Jewish religious leaders, that is, because they don't like being told what they stand for. Everything that they're about is being challenged by him. And also, if he goes his way, they could lose money from Rome. And so they decide to kill him. His own disciple, Judas Iscariot, betrays him, and he is arrested in the Garden of Gethsemane. And after he is arrested, they take him and... Uh, and they turn him over to a weak Roman ruler named Pontius Pilate with trumped-up charges, and he has him crucified in our place with criminals on both sides. Three days later, he rises from the dead and appears to many. In fact, Paul says in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 6, he appeared to 500 people at one time. Now hold on to that thought. This wasn't something done in secret. 500 people at one time saw Jesus. That's more than we have assembled today. He also prepared his disciples or followers for their future ministry as his apostles or messengers over a 40-day period, gathered them at his ascension, promised to empower them to spread the gospel to the world, and then rose up into heaven. How do we grasp that? Here, listen to this as an interesting quote. H.G. Wells was a very prominent historian in, American, well, in, in Western history, and this is what he has to say about Jesus. I am a historian. I am not a believer. But I must confess as a historian that this penniless preacher from Nazareth 
is irrevocably the very center of history. Jesus Christ is easily the most dominant figure in all history. That's pretty profound. That's pretty powerful. So, but but we, it, it creates a problem for us. Have you noticed that Jesus, on one hand, he's true man and he's true God. How can he be both? They're fully God and fully man. So we want to take a look at that. Um, how can he be fully God and fully man? First of all, it's something that he claimed about himself. Jesus said, I and the Father are one. No mistaking that. He claims that he's equal with God the Father in heaven. Um, there's no dancing around it. C.S. Lewis puts it this way. I am trying here to prevent anyone saying the really foolish thing that people often say about him. I am ready to accept Jesus as a great moral teacher, but I don't accept his claim to be God. That is one thing we must not say. A man who was merely a man and said the sort of things Jesus said would not be a great moral teacher. He would either be a lunatic on a level with the man who says he is a poached egg, or else he would be the devil of hell. You must make your choice. Either this man was and is the son of God, or else a madman or something worse. You can try to shut him up for a fool. You can spit at him and call him a demon. Or you can fall down at his feet and call him Lord and God. But let us not come up with any patronizing nonsense about his being a great human teacher. He has not left that open to us. He did not intend to. That's pretty clear, and that's what Jesus is saying in scriptures. But others also recognize this. In prophesying about him, Isaiah, prophesying about the Messiah, says, and he shall be called mighty God. Could that be more clear? And Paul later explains what the Christians believed even after Jesus had left the scene, so to speak. And he says, for in Christ all the fullness of deity lives in bodily form. During his lifetime, he was worshipped as God, and those in the boat worshipped him, saying, truly you are the Son of God. And notice Jesus did not say, don't worship me. And we're told that in the future, in Philippians chapter 2, verse 10, again, every knee will bow and every tongue confess. He does things that only God can do that proves that he's God. But, but here's something we've got to grasp. Have you ever considered some of the prophecies about Jesus? Let me just share a few of them with you. Um, coming, this comes, I, I'll give credit to Tom Holliday and Kay Warren. We borrowed a lot from their material in what's known as um, the Foundations Theology uh, Workbook that they have. Fulfillment of prophecy. One, born of a virgin. Two, a descendant of Abraham. Three, of the tribe of Judah. Four, of the house of David. Five, born in Bethlehem. Six, taken to Egypt. Seven, Herod's killing of the infants. Eight, anointed by the Holy Spirit. Nine, heralded by the messenger of the Lord, John the Baptist. Ten, would perform miracles. Eleven, would preach good news. Twelve, would minister in Galilee. Thirteen, would cleanse the temple. Fourteen, would enter Jerusalem as a king on a donkey. Fifteen, would be rejected by Jews. Sixteen, die a humiliating death, which included rejection, betrayal of a friend, sold for 30 pieces of silver, silenced before accusers, mocked, beaten, spit upon, piercing hands and feet, crucified with thieves, praying for persecutors, piercing his side, given gall and vinegar to drink, no bones broken, buried in a rich man's tomb, casting lots for garments, and then would rise from the dead, ascend into heaven, would sit down at the right hand of God, eat your heart out, Nostradamus. Right? I mean, talk about prophecies, because anybody ever done anything like that? 
And that's just some of them. There are 300 overall that we've counted. Isn't that overwhelming? So he was God. No question about it. Um, we count also his miracles and his resurrection. How could we not say he's God? But he was also human. How do we know he's human? He was born. He was born a human. He had human growth, and Jesus increased in wisdom and in stature and in the favor of with God and man. Holiday and Warren observed that this passage shows that Jesus grew in four human ways, intellectually, physically, spiritually, and socially. He experienced human emotions. We have examples of Jesus' grief in John eleven thirty five, his compassion, Mark one forty one, and his anger, Mark three five, among other emotions. He was a Jew, and Jewish people are a lot more emotional than we are. So I can guarantee you he's very emotional. He had human experiences and needs. He was tired, John 4, 6. Hungry, Matthew 4, 2. Thirsty, John 19, 28. Tempted, Matthew 4, 1 through 11. And died, Luke chapter 38, verse 23, verse 46. Do you catch how many passages there are in these in a variety of places that just talk about his humanity? Now here's the problem it leaves us with. Was he God or was he man? Yeah. Was he God or was he man? That, yes. Um, so this is what we call the blending of the two natures. I like what Luke chapter 1 verse 35 describes. And the angel answered her, the Holy Spirit will come upon you, and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. Therefore, the child to be born to you will be called Holy, the Son of God. Clearly, this human girl, this young virgin girl, gave a human birth, but... God overshadowed it so that the baby was born without any relations with that man. He just implanted the baby in her, the seed in her. And so God comes to earth through man. The most natural way to explain this is that, you know, you look at it and he was 50% God and 50% man. Or maybe that he was God, but he appeared to be man. Or maybe that he was a man, but empowered by God. But if you choose any of those three, you're wrong. Because that's not true in the Bible. It disagrees with all the teachings we have in the Bible. And after centuries, people went over and over that, and it just emphatically was clear that's wrong. And people that believed those things were considered to be heretics. Could even be kicked out of the church. Because they had to nail that down early on. Um, it's hard to explain it. The, the most formal... Uh, you Try this, okay? The, see if you can grasp this. This is... This is kind of like the epical statement on who Jesus is from the Council of Chalcedon in A.D. 451. Long time ago, but these guys are pretty smart. Listen to this. They said, Jesus exists in two natures which exist without confusion, without change, without division, without separation, the difference of the natures having been in no wise taken away by reason of the union, but rather the properties of each being preserved and both concurring in one person. Got that? Let me translate for you from uh, Holiday and Warren. Jesus became 100% God and 100% man 100% of the time. That's not good math, but it's excellent theology. That's what he's saying. So we can say it intellectually and we can put all the pieces together and it can stretch your brain till it pops. But the bottom line is Jesus is 100% God and 100% man 
100% of the time. Does that blow your mind? That's what we're talking about here. The most unique creature, the most create, unique being ever to inhabit this planet. Did you know that Jesus lived a sinless life? What's called next is the, what they call is the, hypostat, the, the, the hypostatic union. The hypostatic union is this idea, this blending of Jesus. That's a fancy name for saying, well, how could he be God and man and not sin and so forth? And, and the way that they understand, I like the way they say this. In short, Jesus limits himself when he becomes fully man. In other words, he allows himself to lose races, spill food on himself, stumble over words, and experience the physical and emotional limitations we talked about earlier. But none of those behaviors are sin. He does not lessen himself. He remains God. When, when, with my kids when they were little, I would play with them, play games with them, and I would let them, I wouldn't let them just win because I wanted to make them work at it, but I would, I would, it wasn't fun if I just did it all on my own, right? I could cream, cream them in anything. They were just little kids. So I would let them, I'd give them a leg up. I'd let them go as far as they could. I was still their dad. I was still a grown-up. But I lessened, I, I, I didn't lessen myself, but I limited what I could do in order to make it more enjoyable and help them to grow and learn and so forth. But I still was myself. I was still their dad. Does that make sense? Not a perfect illustration, but Jesus does that. So Jesus, all those things aren't sin. It's not sin to lose races or to fall or to stumble over your words. Those aren't sinful things. And Jesus would limit himself in ways that were human. He would get tired. Um, he would, you know, he would you know, get worn out. Uh, he would go through the emotions that we go through. Consider it this way. He limited his presence to one place at a time. He could be every place at once, but he limited himself on earth to one place at a time. He also, um, he also limits his understanding of things, famously regarding his ignorance about his own return in Matthew chapter 24, verse 36. I cannot believe that he did not know about that, but while he was on earth, he limited himself and said, I, I don't know. The Son of Man doesn't know when that's going to happen. At least at that point, he, he, he prevented himself from knowing that. Profound, and just hard to explain entirely. But at the same time, having said that, the decision to be born a man, to walk on this earth, and to die on the cross was made by him as part of the Trinity or Triunity. He limited himself by choice. He was in charge of everything that he did. He'd already figured it out in advance what he was going to do. So could he have sinned? Millard Erickson is a respected theologian. He writes, while he could have sinned, it was certain that he would not. There were genuine struggles and temptations, but the outcome was always certain. He says, uh, he, he asked this question, he says, is a person who does not sin truly human? Ever think about that? Could he have been truly human if he didn't sin? And listen to what he says. The true humanity created by God has in our case been corrupted and spoiled. There have been only three pure human beings. Adam and Eve, before the fall, and Jesus. All the rest of us are but broken, corrupted versions of humanity. Jesus is not only as human as we are. Catch this. He is more human. Our humanity is not a standard by which we are to measure his. His humanity, true and unadulterated, is the standard by which we are to be measured. Good summary statement by J. Vernon McGee. 
God was not tempted to see if he would fall. He was tempted to show that he could not fall. Pretty powerful. Okay, so what does he do? He offers a sacrificial substitutionary death for us. Another theologian, Wayne Grudem, says this. He says, this means that he was to pay the penalty of death that we deserve because of our sins. Christ died as a sacrifice for us. Hebrews 9.26 reads, He has appeared once for all at the end of the age to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. The biblical word for substitutionary death, a better word that they use in the Bible, is the word propitiation, probably one you use frequently. You guys know that word? It's kind of a weird word, propitiation. What does that mean? Propitiation in both Greek and English means a sacrifice that bears God's wrath and turns it to favor. It's a redemptive sacrifice. In other words, somebody does something for somebody else where they sacrifice, and maybe even their life, so that it benefits another person in another way. Does that make sense? So the Bible actually talks about this. John puts it this way. To remove us from the wrath of God we deserve, Christ died as a propitiation for our sins. And this is love. Not that we loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be a propitiation for our sins. It wasn't us, it was him and what he did for us out of his love. Um, Another passage, Paul says, For our sake he made himself to be sin, who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Randy Alcorn summarizes this one well. He says, For Christ to be the propitiation for our sins means that he became the sacrifice upon which God's wrath against sin was brought. Some object to this because they claim if the Father brought our punishment on Jesus, it sounds like divine child abuse. But it isn't. Because Jesus, God's Son, is not a helpless child, but eternally God, and he fully consented to the plan. Next comes the resurrection. I want to just give a synopsis from Wayne Grudem and his systematic theology. All the Gospels talk in detail about the resurrection, and so does the chapter of Acts. I like what Peter says in Acts 2.32 in his famous sermon. He says, this Jesus God raised up, and of that we are all witnesses. And that's why 3,000 people came forward that day. Now, when I die, okay, It's very doubtful that if you went out in the streets and said, hey, Ron is raised from the dead, that anybody would buy it. They're not going to believe it. But in those days, they did. Why did they believe it? The tomb was empty. There had to be some explanation. Something had happened. Why else would 3,000 people come forward? It just shows you that the evidence is absolutely overwhelming. Jesus' resurrection was not simply coming back from the dead, resuscitation like Lazarus. He was alive for good. He'd never die again. And his resurrection ensures future resurrection. Paul says that God made us to alive together with Christ. By grace you are saved and raise us up with him. Paul also says that Jesus was put to death for our trespasses and raised for justification. It was a declaration of redemption. Essentially, it is also a declaration that if If we come to Jesus based on what he did for us, we will live forever with him in heaven. The resurrection assures that we will receive perfect resurrection bodies as well. Did you know that? 1 Corinthians chapter 15 verse 20 tells us that Paul says that Jesus is the first fruits. If you, you know, a lot of you guys farming, you know, the first fruit of the crops is what the rest of the fruit is going to generally look like. If you have good first fruits, the other ones will follow. 
That's what he's saying. He is the first fruits. The others will be just like him. In 1 Corinthians 6, 4, it says that he raises from the dead and brings us into his presence. And the resurrection should also apply to our obedience. As a result, therefore, my beloved brethren, be steadfast and movable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that the Lord, in the Lord your labor is not in vain. Now, I want to stop for a second and talk about the evidence for the resurrection. Did this thing really happen? We could do a whole sermon on it. But I'll tell you what, one of the main things that caused me to commit my life to Christ was studying about the evidence for the resurrection. Did this thing really happen? Don't have time to go into it all, but let me just share a few quotes with you that will get you thinking. These are all quotes by skeptics, two of them who came actually to know Christ in the process. The first one I want to talk about is Flavius Josephus. He was a very highly regarded ancient Jewish historian who lived at the same time as Jesus. People say, was there anything outside of the Bible that talks about Jesus? This guy was the historian of his day about the Jews, and this is what he wrote and what he knew about Jesus. Not a believer, but what he had picked up from his research. About this time there lived Jesus, a wise man, if indeed one ought to call him a man. For he was one who wrought surprising feats and was a teacher of such people as accept the truth gladly. He won over many Jews and many of the Greeks. He was the Christ. When Pilate, upon hearing him accused by men of the highest standing among us, had him condemned to be crucified, those who had in the first place come to love him did not give up their affection for him. On the third day he appeared to them restored to life, where the prophets of God had prophesied these and countless other marvelous things about him. And the tribe of Christians the, of the Christian, so called after him, still to this day have not disappeared. Sam Morse was a journalist. He did not believe in Jesus, and so he did some research. And this summarizes his popular book, Who Rolled Away the Stone. He says in it, the tomb of Jesus is famous because of what it does not contain. He came to faith in Christ as he researched it objectively as a journalist. Another journalist did the same. Lee Strobel wrote The Case for Christ and The Case for Faith in Our, in our Own Era. Um, he wrote once, I went to a psychologist friend and said if 500 people claimed to see Jesus after he died, it was just a hallucination. He said hallucinations are an individual event. If 500 people have the same hallucination, that's a bigger miracle than the resurrection. And then, of course, we have the testimony of transformed lives. The last thing that we talk about in our statement of faith is that his ascension as high priest and advocate at the right hand of God. Jesus rose from the grave, and that's recorded for us, especially in Acts chapter 1, verses 9 through 11. And the angels, at that point, when Jesus rose from the grave, they, they told the people around him, they said, he has risen, and he's gone to another place. In Greek, the, the word for heaven is Uranus. And you know what that means? Basically, somewhere out there. He went to another place. He went to heaven. And there he has received glory and honor that he had not been, been his before as the God-man. Paul tells us in Philippians chapter 2, verse 9, God has highly exalted him. John was taken to heaven in an incredible vision to see something that was important for him to relate back to us. He writes how angelic choirs sing praise to Jesus continuously with these words, Worthy is the Lamb who was slain 
to receive power and wealth and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing. He now sat down at the right hand of God as prophesied in the Bible. And this doesn't mean that he is perpetually in a fixed position. It's a way of saying that he has returned to a position of power and authority with God the Father in heaven. It should give us great hope. If we're united with Christ, then one day we'll join him. We who are alive, who are left, shall be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air, and so we shall always be with the Lord. Paul says that God raised us up with him and made us sit with him in the heavenly places in Jesus, in Christ Jesus. And we'll talk more about that later in our series. Uh, we talked earlier about him being the high priest. He offered himself as a perfect sacrifice for sin, but it, as it is, he has appeared once for all at the end of the age to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. In this role, he continually draws us near to God and he continually prays for us. Jesus is praying for us. Do you know he... Do you, you want to have a prayer warrior? Do you know Jesus never stops praying for you? Interceding for you? It says this, He is able for all time to save those who draw near to God through him since he always lives to make intercession or prayer for them. And he intercedes for us as an advocate. Last thing we'll say here. My dear children, I write this to you, this is John, so that you will not sin. But if anybody does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, our righteous one, the righteous one. This means that he can, can take up our sin as like a defense attorney. If we know Jesus, we don't have to worry. He's the one who intercedes on our behalf. You don't have to go around feeling guilty. You're already forgiven for whatever you've done. And Jesus, who is God and is the Son, speaks on your behalf to the Father in any situation. And you can rest in that. Randy Alcorn put it this way, how does it make you feel to know that Jesus is your advocate, your defense attorney? Can you imagine Jesus standing between you and your accuser, Satan? The thought makes me worship, smile, rejoice, and praise God. Just as Randy Alcorn writes of his response to the knowledge that Jesus is his advocate, how should we respond to what we've learned today? Have you yet bowed the knee to King Jesus? One day you will forcefully bow your knee. Why not willingly bow it today? Do you admit that you're a sinner in need of a Savior, Jesus Christ? Do you really believe all the things we're talking about him today, that he died in your place and rose from the grave? Have you yet chosen to surrender your will and your way to him and embrace him as your Lord and Savior? If you haven't, I pray that you'd come and talk to us about that today. And if you know him, consider some of the statements that we've made. How did they impact you personally? Just go back to that statement of faith. Again, you can look it up on the website. Just spend some time chewing on it. Um, for example, being fully man, Jesus is able to understand my needs. It's not like this distant God that doesn't get it. He's been here. He's done that. Uh, think about this. Jesus knows what it's like to labor hard. 
Jesus knows what it's like to study hard. Jesus knows what it's like to take care of a woman, his mother, who apparently was widowed most of his adult life. He knows what it's like to help raise children. He knows what it's like to live in hardship. He knows what it's like to feel stones slung against his body. Jesus knows all the things you know. He understands. He can grasp what's going on in your life. And yet at the same time, he's God. And that means that not only does he understand and empathize with you, but he can do what's best for you always if you surrender your will and way to him and work it out for your good. Even in the midst of suffering, as we've seen with our friends in Nigeria. God is God, and he's in control. I also encourage you to share some of this information with somebody else this week who doesn't know Jesus. Who's in your oikos, that 8 to 15 people in your life? What one truth can you tell them, just for conversation on, a, on Monday morning? How was your weekend? Fine. What did you do? Oh, we stayed home while it rained. What did you do? We went to church. And we learned something really interesting. Did you know Jesus is fully God and fully man? Got a conversation going there. Try it. Who can you talk to this week? You know, we began by saying that Jesus will never go away. Well, he did. He went to heaven. But he didn't really. Because Jesus can be all places at all times. Does that blow your mind? My mind's pretty exhausted already studying this and explaining it to you as best I can by the magnitude of who Jesus is. I hope you feel a bit overwhelmed. But I hope you also feel encouraged and inspired to know that Jesus really is God and he really is man and he really did die for you and he really rose from the grave and you can have a relationship with him and worship him. And what leads me to is, is back to worship and back to prayer. So will you join me in a word of prayer? Um, Jesus, we, uh, we recognize you're here right now. And we are overwhelmed by who you are. It's just, it's just beyond comprehension and beyond the ability to fully explain. But Lord, I pray that we would just grasp a little bit of it. I pray that we would go out today celebrating the fact that you are the God of the universe and you have victory over Satan and over all the forces of darkness and over our own sin and brokenness. Thank you, Lord Jesus, that you've risen from the grave and will rise with you one day in Christ. We praise you for what a wonderful, awesome, holy God you are and look forward to the day of singing praises, not only here in church, but with the holy host of heaven. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.